Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Um, I imagine that all of you at some point in your life have been part of something that had some sort of like a well-known practice that you didn't quite understand. And maybe um, we feel a little embarrassed or maybe we feel a little bit uncomfortable even to ask why we do something. Uh, but whether it's maybe in your family, whether it's in an organization that you worked with or you worked for, whether it's at your workplace or your office, maybe there's some sort of a process that's been put in place at your office or your workplace or in your home where there's some sort of unspoken code um, around something that you did, like you just do it to do it. There's really no meaning behind it. You've never really stopped to ask the question, why do we do that? And so I'm sure that we've all been a part of something like that in our life. Um, can I get, get really real with you guys this morning? You're going to learn a lot about me in the next two minutes. And uh, please don't use this as ammunition. But when I was growing up, I don't know if my parents are here, but my parents built the house that we grew up in. And when they built the house, one of the first things that they built was a bathroom. Uh, and it was in my parents' bedroom at the time, like a master bedroom suite with this bathroom in it, with this jetted bathtub and no shower. And so growing up, like, I never took showers. And it was because the first bathroom that we built only had this tub in it, this jetted tub. And so I always took baths. And that was just kind of an odd thing. So growing up in life, like, I just always take baths. To this day, like, I only take baths. I do not shower, just so you guys know that. I'm a very clean person. But I bathe one, sometimes two times a day because I absolutely love reading in the bathtub. But, and I'm a big dude. Like, to squeeze in a bathtub is pretty insane. But I only take baths. And it wasn't until, like, maybe 10 years ago that um, I was in conversation with somebody, and we were talking about bathing. And they are like, you take baths? I'm like, yeah, everybody take bath, takes baths. No, we don't. Most of us take showers. I'm like, why have I always taken a bath? <laughs> Lo and behold, like, it was kind of this form and function that was put into place when I was a kid when my parents built this house, and there was a reason to it, but that reason that I originally started thinking about, I mean, eventually, two other bathrooms existed in that house, and it had showers, and I still went to the jetted tub and took baths until I moved out of the house. Our shower gets, like, no use in our home right now. Uh, my boys take baths, too, so now I've passed this, <laughs> this nasty habit on. Um, the other weird thing was because we built this house in our kitchen, for some odd reason, we would brush our teeth at the kitchen sink. Does anybody else do this? See? Like, I'm just this weirdo. Um, and so growing up, this became kind of tradition. It was this ritual, like you brushed it. And I don't know why we even did that, I, honestly. I think it had to do with the house being built and having one sink to go to at the time. I don't, I don't even know. But... Um, oddly enough, years later, when one of my best friends got married, like a couple years before Heather and I got married, um, I sat down with him a few months after his wedding, and I'm like, so what's the most difficult thing about marriage so far? What have you learned? He's like, honestly? He's like, my wife and I get into the biggest fights about where to brush our teeth. And I'm like, really? Like, how so? He's like, well, I grew up brushing my teeth at the kitchen sink, and she brushes her teeth in the bathroom. And I want to keep my toothpaste and my toothbrush at the kitchen sink. She wants to keep it in the bathroom. And we get in these arguments about it all the time. And I'm like, I understand, dude. Like, I brush my teeth at the kitchen sink. And so 
these things in our lives, there's, there's many things, if you dig down into it, that we do because we've always done, not because there may be even any purpose to it at this point in, in our life, but we continue to repeat the patterns. And hence, I, I have handed that down to my kids, so now they bathe as well. But as we get into this passage this morning, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, um, Jesus addresses this practice that had become merely a religious act. And as Jesus engaged the religious elite of his day, he often does so to address the heart behind or the reason behind or the motivation behind why they do what they do. And I believe it's very easy for us to all fall prey to the same trap in our lives today. I'd venture to say that, that fasting even within the church is a lot like these scenarios that we just talked about, right? Some people might say that fasting is always done in a certain time of the year. Others would say that fasting is about dietary health. Anybody in here fast for dietary reasons? Like, yeah, it's a big thing nowadays, I think. Um, but others would say that fasting is about paying some sort of penance. Like we fast in order to sort of make up for our sins, to pay for what we've done. And ultimately, I think that many in the church have heard about fasting, they've read about fasting, they've talked about fasting, we know it's something that people in church do, and maybe we've even participated in a fast at some point, but if we're honest, we don't know what biblical fasting is all about and why we do it. And so today, we're going to look at this text in Matthew to see how Jesus responds to this question that's asked of him with regards to fasting and what we're going to find is that Jesus actually answers three questions for us this morning in these four passages. One, what gives Jesus the authority over fasting? Why is he in control of it? Two, why do we fast and why is it important? Three, with what spirit or motivation or heart do we fast with? And I think that the answers to these questions will actually help equip us to understand and hopefully to practice this thing that we call fasting ourselves. So let's look at the text, see what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter nine, verses 14 through 17. You guys there? Word, you can say word. 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You see, many Jews, including the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples who were asking this question, would typically fast two days a week. It was, it was part of the ritual. They're, they're basically coming with this question of Jesus. How come your disciples don't do what we have been told to do? And in essence, they're saying, why do you get to change the rules? Like, what gives you the authority to do something different that has always been ingrained in our culture and been a part of it since the beginning? And so in order to answer their question, Jesus draws on an Old Testament theme that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples would have been really familiar with. He says, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? And this is a massive statement that Jesus is making here because a lot of people are coming around and they're asking him questions. Like, what gives you the authority to preach and teach the way that you do? We've read through this. What, what gives you the authority to say the things you do? What's up with that, Jesus? How can you talk the way you do as though you're God? 
But in the Old Testament, God at times refers to himself as the bridegroom or the husband of Israel, of God's people. And one of the examples is in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, when God speaks of the mercy he will have on his people with this coming Messiah. And this is what he says. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by mine by name no more. So Baal means Lord or owner. It's other gods, right? So uh, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me like my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, these other lords, and they shall be remembered by, my, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see, throughout their history, the Jews have been praying and fasting and longing to make good, for, for God to make good on his promise to restore his people and betroth them in faithful marriage under this covenant as their bridegroom, like he was their husband, to be their husband. And Jesus is saying in this passage, what he's saying is, listen, that day's come. As he's standing, he's saying, it's come, I'm here. And he says, I'm the bridegroom. Like, I am God in the flesh who has come to restore all people in a marriage covenant with myself, with me. And so this is Jesus claiming his deity. This is Jesus claiming that I am God. And because the Pharisees and John the the Baptist's disciples fasted in mourning over the fallen state of their nation, waiting for the coming bridegroom, this coming Messiah. Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the husband or the bridegroom is actually with them? So he, he, he says, would it make sense for those who are, who, who, who are friends, uh, who you're friends with or in relationship with and in fellowship with, the, with the, uh, in fellowship with the bridegroom, would it make sense for them to mourn on a wedding day? Like who goes to a wedding to mourn? Anybody ever go to, don't raise your hand if you actually have. Nobody goes to a wedding to mourn. You go to a wedding to celebrate. Who goes to weddings to eat? Come on. Like, you go to weddings to celebrate, and you go to weddings to feast, not fast. And Jesus says, I'm God in the flesh. I literally have authority over fasting, and because I'm here with my disciples, there's no need for them to fast right now. And so if Jesus, as God, has this authority over fasting and his disciples didn't fast at this time, then again, why should we fast? Why is it important for us as followers of Jesus to fast? And so the end of verse 15, Jesus says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then what? Come on, guys, it's on the screen. They will fast. The day will come when I will be gone, and they will fast. So first of all, notice that Jesus says that his disciples will fast. Not might fast, maybe fast, could fast. He says they will fast. 
So this isn't some suggestion that Jesus is making. It's an expectation of Jesus that those who follow him will fast. So understand that this is not really something that Jesus poses as optional for us. It's actually something he thinks we're going to do. And so Jesus says there's coming a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And what he's referring to is this time after his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. It's the days when he's no longer physically with his disciples. And guess what? It's the time we're in right now. He says, those are the days when they're gonna fast. When I'm gone, they're gonna fast. And so Jesus is saying that it's during the span of time that those who follow him should be fasting. But again, why? Why is it so important? Really, why should we fast? And what we see in scripture is that like prayer, fasting is sort of confessing. It's confessing in humility. It's, it's confessing the, the limitations of our own abilities. It's confessing our need for Jesus. It's a confession that we need Jesus more than the thing that we're fasting from, amen? It's this opportunity to draw near to Jesus with hunger and with need for him because he's not with us in person. He's with us in spirit. And in Matthew 5, 6, we read this a couple months ago. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So listen to this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So fasting is this opportunity to deny ourselves of something good or something satisfying like food, social media, television, something that you're gonna deny yourself on, something that satisfies you while you begin to Ask for something better and more satisfying than those things. Like deep, intimate, spiritual fellowship with Jesus. And Jesus promised that he would not leave us as orphans, but that he would be with us always through his spirit. And so what he was saying was that once he was no longer physically in this world, which is the case right now. Anybody see Jesus anywhere in this room right now? He's not here physically. but that he would be with us spiritually. And so the call is to fast from things in this physical, present world in order to make room for closer spiritual fellowship with Jesus, to draw near to him. Like we don't just fast to fast, we fast to confess our need for more of Jesus, for, for more Jesus so that we can turn from our sin more of Jesus so that we might walk more and more in his likeness. More of Jesus so that we might see his work of his salvation in our midst. More of Jesus so that we might see more, that we would see more and more acts of his justice. And so we fast to confess our need and to ask and make room for more of Jesus. And in the midst of this fasting, when our bodies like crave that, that, that physical thing that we're denying, that we're fasting from, it's then that we pray and we confess that, that our need for Jesus is greater than our need for food. We, we fast from really good physical things in order to make way for something that is far greater than what can satiate your stomach. And honestly, it, it, it's a little bit like 
at, at Thanksgiving, like turning down the mashed potatoes or that side of some sort to make room for dessert, right? Anybody do that? Some of you are just like, I'm all in, I don't even care, right? And you pay for it later. Most of us responsible people choose what we're gonna eat up front so that we can have the good stuff at the end. Or it's a little bit like denying, the, making those purchases in your life, whatever they are, so that you can make room in your budget for the one big thing that you wanna have. And so we do this so often in our life for practical purposes. Look at your life and think about how you budget your food. And I'm not just calling saying spending, but your consumption of food. How do you budget your life in general, your time, your food? your work, like, like how do you budget it? You do it so that you can make time for the things that really matter in your life. And it's the same thing with fasting. We deny ourselves some things in order to make room for better things, spiritual things. And so we fast from good physical things in order to make way for something better, for more of Jesus. And so Jesus has the authority over fasting. And so Jesus calls us to fast in order that we would draw near to him. And the last question is this then. With what spirit or motivation do we fast? Because that's what Jesus is getting at here. So look at verse 16. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins so that both are preserved. So what the heck does this mean? <laughs> Jesus is so good at like, hey, take this illustration, deal with that one, you know, and you're like, uh, I really don't understand. We especially don't understand today because we don't know Jewish culture. And so he uses these illustrations and we gotta do some digging. But how does this help us understand the spirit or the motivation in which we're to fast? Because this is what Jesus is coming against with the Pharisees and with John the Baptist's disciples who are questioning why they're required to fast and Jesus' disciples don't have to. And so Jesus uses these two examples, these two illustrations that, that, that they would have understand, understood very well. And the first was this idea of taking an unshrunk, unwashed piece of cloth and sewing it onto an old garment that was already shrunk and had already been washed. Like, what would happen if you do that? The patch would shrink when it was worn and when it was washed, and the patch would have pulled away from the garment. So very simply, what Jesus is saying is that he wasn't just some new patch placed on an old system. He wasn't duct tape. Jesus wasn't this last-minute Hail Mary pass from God he, he, Jesus wasn't uh, th this fix that God placed on this old, co old covenant system and on this old law. Jesus actually revitalized and restored the whole thing. Jesus was not just a fix. And honestly, we sometimes look at Jesus as just a fix. Some of you are here today because you're looking at Jesus as a fix. I'll be honest. We, we come to him just to take care of a problem in our life just to bail us out of some situation that we find ourselves in. And Jesus does do those things sometimes. I mean, interestingly enough, we can come to him and expect him to be duct tape, and there's sometimes, by his grace, that he's just duct tape, isn't he? And you're like, oh, thank the Lord. Like, that feels really good to get that thing patched up. But Jesus, 
is way more interested in total restoration, life-altering, like transformative heart work than he is in just behavior modification and giving you a, a quick fix to your life. Because what happens when you go to him for the next issue or the circumstance in your life? If you come to him this morning and you're like, Jesus, I need you to be duct tape and just patch that thing up in my life, and he fixes it. And then the next time you come to him, you're like, Jesus, need that duct tape again, and then he doesn't fix it, what does that do to your relationship with him at that point? Oh, God's not real. He did it last time, but not this time. Like, what's up now, God? Like, peace, I'm out of here. The work was not inner. It wasn't in your heart. It wasn't transformative and life-altering. It was duct tape. And so you'll just continue to go back to him in your life to put another piece of tape on and just to keep putting tape on, but to never do the hard work of dealing with the inside. And this is the work that Jesus was doing. Your whole heart needs changing because when your heart is changed and your will is surrendered to his, then whatever life throws at you doesn't divert us from his plan. It doesn't cause you to walk away because Jesus was only affixed to your circumstances. Like he's more than that. And so Jesus is simply saying, you wouldn't repair old garments like this. And so as an illustration of the fact that he was more than a teacher, that he was more than a prophet, he was more than somebody who came to fix their system, he was God. He was God. And then Jesus takes it a step further with another illustration. And so in Jesus' day, the way that they would preserve wine and carry it was actually in goat skin. And so before pouring in the wine that you're gonna store for long term, the wine skin was heated, it was rubbed, it was inflated, it was rinsed with water, it was filled with wine for five days and then dumped out and then the good wine gets poured into it because the skin is ready to receive the good wine. And so then the, the wineskin can be used for storing and for drinking wine, and it's good for long term because it had some elasticity to it. And so old wineskins would have been stretched to their extent at times. They, they, they could become dry. They could become brittle. They could become worn out. They, they couldn't handle the new fresh wine if it was poured into it because the skin was rotten and, and, and brittle and old. And so it's kind of like if you've got an old brittle balloon. And if it's lost its elasticity and you try to pour water into it, what happens to it? The thing just falls apart. It doesn't hold it. And so the Pharisees and John's disciples, their expectation was that Jesus was just going to bring a slight twist to their old religious ways of Judaism, to try to patch up the old balloon. But Jesus is saying, listen, I've actually come to bring something new. And so in the Old Testament, God's people were given these rituals and these laws to perform in order to maintain their relationship with the Lord. And they, in order for them to have right standing with God, they had to follow through with these things. And so these rituals, these acts, ultimately served as this reminder of their sin, that they desperately needed God, and they had a desperate need of a Savior because they couldn't fix themselves. And so they would sacrifice goats, and they would sacrifice bulls and lambs, on these altars and then offer up these sacrifices to God as payment for their sins, to make up for their sins. And so God had given these laws and these commands to his people that they were to sacrifice these animals for the forgiveness of their sins to restore and renew the relationship, their fellowship with God. 
And so they ultimately perform all these ritual acts to signify their faith and their trust in God's commands. So under the Old Testament law, doing these acts would restore them back to fellowship God, with God when they slipped up, when they made poor decisions, when they didn't follow through with all of God's commands, when they were disobedient, when they missed something. But these were acts that were done by people to signify their faith. <laughs> and get this, and then Jesus comes. And Jesus says, I didn't come to put a twist on the old covenant system, I came to bring a new covenant. And just like that, these old wineskins are too brittle to contain this new wine. And so this old covenant is too brittle to contain the new covenant. And so Jesus comes declaring his deity as God in the flesh. And so like we mentioned earlier, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with all of it. I actually came to fulfill it. I mean, that in and of itself is proof in the pudding that Jesus was not tape on the wound. It was not tape as a fix. He didn't come to do away with it. He fulfilled it, he restored it, he renewed it. And so no longer would people have to perform these righteous acts on their own, like sacrificing goats. Anybody here still sacrificing goats and bulls, lambs? If you raise your hand, we've got some issues. Nobody here has to do that to go restore their fellowship with God when they leave here today. You don't have to wait once a year to go to the priest and offer up the sacrifice so that you're good for the year. Because Jesus actually fulfilled the law by becoming that sacrifice himself. He was it. And so as John the Baptist said when he first laid eyes on Jesus, when we got at the beginning of Matthew when we were reading through this, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus was bringing this new covenant, this new wine that the old covenant or the old wineskins couldn't contain. And it was such a freeing offer from Jesus, like no longer would people perform ritual acts to signify their faith and trust in God as they mourned and waited for the Savior King to eventually come. Instead, we, followers of Jesus, we signify our faith in God by trusting and believing in his one act. Don't we? Jesus going to the cross and being the sacrifice for us to atone for the sins of all of mankind, that if we believe in him, we shall not perish but have everlasting life. So listen, if you're new here this morning, or you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, or you're asking questions about Christianity this morning, here's what this is saying. It's not about the do, it's about the done. Not about what you can do, it's about what Jesus has done. It's not about what you do to earn your way to God, it's about what Jesus has done to actually restore you back to God. And so what Jesus is saying in these illustrations is that he didn't want to just put a fresh coat of paint on an old building. He wanted to refurbish it, he wanted to redeem it and restore this old building. And because of that, when we do fast, we don't fast with the same religious, ritualistic reasons that the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples fasted. They fasted with what? Go read in the Old Testament, with mourning. They, they, they fasted in waiting for a king, the Savior, to come. We fast by doing what? Looking back on the cross. 
We fast by doing what? Awaiting the bridegroom to come back for his church, longing for those days. We look back at his life and his death and his resurrection. We believe firmly that the king has already come, and so followers of Jesus have tasted the new wine of Jesus' presence. We, our, our sins have been forgiven. We, we've been satisfied by the Savior. And so in that sense, there's, there's not mourning, there's rejoicing and celebration, isn't there? Anybody mourning that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins? No, you better be like elated. <laughs> it's not what you deserve, but it's what you got by his grace. Which is why it makes sense when Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 6, he said, when you fast, again, here's this expectation. When you fast, <laughs> he said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So he says, don't portray fasting as sorrowful, sorrowful or painful or mournful, that's not the spirit or the motivation behind fasting. Jesus says to his followers, when you fast, actually think of me. Think of your bridegroom, your husband. Think of your king. And yet at the same time, we've been promised that there's much more to come. Like although the king has come, we now, we know that we, we live in this world that's still full of sickness, this world that is still full of disease and suffering and pain, and we are buried deep in it right now. But like I said earlier, we fast knowing that Jesus has authority over all of these things, amen? And so what are we longing and fasting for? We're longing and fasting for the day that our king will put an end to all destruction and chaos on this earth once and for all. We fast and we pray and we yearn for the day when what we've tasted and seen in Jesus is actually final and complete that we're with him. We don't fast with mourning in our hearts, we fast with, fast with joy and expectation. So we fast because Jesus has authority over fasting and he commands it. We fast from good physical things in order to make room and to confess our need for Jesus, to draw near to his presence. And we fast out of joy and expectation, not out of mourning, not out of bitterness. And so uh, unlike what we see in this world, biblical fasting is not about some dietary cleanse. It's not about paying some kind of penance for your sin. It's not about some ritual behavior. Biblical fasting is joy-filled. It's a spiritually cultivating time where we confess our longing for and our need of Jesus. I wasn't even planning on getting like so fasting heavy in this text. But Jesus was making this statement about his authority his deity, in this interaction he's having with the Pharisees. And Matthew's writing this from this Jewish perspective to Jewish people, and so it's really important for Matthew to point out things like the fact that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, like we talked about last week, and that Jesus wasn't enforcing his disciples to follow through with the Jewish rituals and the Jewish practices. And Matthew's making this point because Matthew wanted uh, his readers to know that when he put pen to paper, he wanted people to know who Jesus actually was. This was his goal. Matthew wasn't just trying to record history. Sometimes you can go read the Bible and just think, oh, it's just a historical account. Like they're just trying to make sense of it all. And Matthew had a specific reason he wrote what he did. 
but he was trying to convince the Jewish audience who Jesus was. And he, he, he does it not just by highlighting that Jesus spoke with great authority, that Jesus made all these amazing claims, although Jesus did do those things, but Jesus actually backs it up. He actually follows through. And so as Matthew records the, the Sermon on the Mount that we read months ago in, in chapters five through seven, he records all these claims that Jesus makes to his authority. And then as we've studied through chapters eight and nine, you see that Matthew sort of doubles back on the Sermon on the Mount and says, here's all these claims that Jesus made, and they're all evidenced by these things that Jesus actually did. And so Matthew's writing this to substantiate Jesus' claims. Just like back earlier in in chapter nine, we read a couple weeks ago, when this paralytic is brought before Jesus, and what does he say? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says this to him, like quite the claim that Jesus is making to forgive somebody's sins. Like you'd have to be God to make that. And so as the Pharisees and the scribes start grumbling and complaining because who has the authority to grant somebody forgiveness of their sins except for God himself? And Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And so the claim was actually validated by a sign. The claim was, I can forgive sins. The sign was, watch me heal this man just to prove to you that I am who I say I am. This morning, I would ask you the question, what more does Jesus have to do in your life to prove that he is real? That he's it, that he's king and Lord, that he's your savior, that he is all you need. So the claim was validated by the sign. So what does this mean for you and I? And I'll wrap up with this. It means that we actually should fast. (laughs) And as I prayed about this this week, and as I continue to wrestle with even like the current jump going on in our culture right now, the state of our country, the healthcare system, schools, COVID, like the whole thing, families, church, everything, I seriously just couldn't help but ask this question of myself, why aren't we fasting? Why am I not fasting? If we do this as a way to sort of deny our physical necessities in order to trust that Jesus would actually be the one to satiate us, it seems like there's no better time than now to draw near to Jesus. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Should we be drawing near to Jesus right now? You better believe it. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up here. You won't hear me talk about politics from the stage very often. And I try really hard to be a fairly apolitical person from the stage. And that's intentional. Honestly, it's because I'm not your intermediary between you and God. You have access to the Holy Spirit by way of Jesus. Pray, educate yourself, read the word, make decisions that are informed by the word of God through his Holy Spirit as to what you're supposed to do in this current situation we find ourselves in. And at the end of the day, what I have to believe is that if I'm seeking Jesus, making the best decision I can by his spirit, who's ultimately in control of what takes place in this country, whether we like it or not? Jesus. 
He knows the beginning from the end. And the reason we find ourselves freaking out right now and being like running amok and thinking we're losing control and there's so much uncertainty ahead, the reason that happens is we actually deny the fact that he's here with us right now. Because we've taken the reins into our own hands to think that somehow we're in control of the ship. And it's him. And I really want to encourage you guys this week. As I look back on the times that I've spent time in prayer and the, 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 the seasons of my life where I've tried these like even extended fasts, you can sometimes be convinced that the reason you do those things is to move the hand of God. I'm gonna go pray and fast right now because I want God's outcome to be the outcome that I want. And what I'm finding the older I get and the more time I spend with Jesus, is that those two practices, praying and fasting, actually leave me at more peace with his desired outcome instead of fighting for my own. Some of you are fighting for your own outcome right now, man. You're a mess inside. You're reaching for this and you're trying to do that because you're losing control and you don't understand what's going on and so you just think everything is out of control in your life because somehow God isn't aligned with your will and what you want and I challenge you this week. Have you tried fasting? Have you actually spent intentional time with Jesus praying? Because I, I think if you do that, it'd be less about God doing your will and more about you being okay with his. And we need that right now, church. Like his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not your will, not my will, not Anthem Coeur will, not our mayor's will, not the president's will. It's his will be done. Jesus's will will be done. And these practices of praying and fasting, they change us. Like, I, I, I find that, my, that I'm renewed, that, that I have this uh, sort of renewed ability to trust that he will take care, that he will lead me through the valleys and the mountaintops of life. And I just want my will to be aligned with his, my heart to be aligned with his. And what Jesus comes pushing against in all of these contexts is people who are trying to carry forth their will and what they want to accomplish in their time and their way instead of surrendering to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And for some of you this morning, it's just time to surrender to the King, man. Like, it is that easy. It's just time to let go of your own life and your own will, your own expectations. And ask Jesus, what the heck is he doing in your life? Where's he leading you? How do you become at peace in your life with what he does, whether you like it or not? Because most of your life is gonna be living in that tension of like some things that happen seem really good like God got your back. Some things that happen in your life seem really bad like where is he on that one? But seeking him and drawing near to him is about being okay with whatever happens regardless and knowing that he hasn't left his seat on the throne. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the reminder this morning 
that we surrender our will to yours. I thank you for this reminder this morning, Lord, that when we pray and we fast, God, it isn't to see what we want happen, it's to be okay with whatever it is you want to happen, knowing that you know what's best. And Jesus, I pray for those in this room because I I just, I can't help but think that there are those in this room who inside are just anxiety-ridden and stress cases right now. And they're freaking out over all the uncertainty of business and life and family and school and um, uh, uh, COVID and all the, the election, all this stuff that's going on, Lord. And they feel like they're just sort of spinning out right now because there's nothing grounding them. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd remind us that you are the anchor You are the only grounding thing in our life in the midst of a sea of things that are always shifting. You are the only one that is constant. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I pray for your church, Lord, that instead of us grounding ourselves to the things of this world that are always shifting and moving and changing, we would ground ourselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords this morning. I pray, Jesus, that we be reminded this morning that it isn't about our sacrifice and what we can do, God. Your word, as we read last week, said you desire mercy, not sacrifice. And yet, Jesus, we so often are a people that get into these rituals of doing things and we never stop to ask, like, why do I do that? And is it actually beneficial for my life to continue those practices? And I'm praying this week, Lord, as we leave here, that there be those that would be willing to spend intentional time praying this week, spend intentional time fasting, denying themselves of physical things in this world in order to be taken care of and satiated by you. And I pray in the midst of this, God, that there would be a continued renewal of our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I pray for your encouragement to come, Lord, as there's so many in this room that are just like gloomy and down. They've allowed everything in this world to literally pin them into a corner and convince them that they just live in this state of defeat. And yet we know, Jesus, that the same resurrection power that lifted Jesus out of the grave lives within each one of us. And I pray, God, that we invite your spirit to lead in our lives in your way, in your time. We love you, Jesus. We love you. I pray, God, that you just empower and be with your church as we leave these doors this morning, Lord, that as we go back out into this world, we wave this banner high of Jesus. This isn't about our side, their side. This isn't about our will, their will. This is about Jesus. Your will be done, Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray your blessing upon your church as we leave today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you guys stand with me? As we spend some time singing this morning, even in light of what we've just talked about, I'll encourage you, we don't sing songs to sing songs. We sing songs to worship Jesus, to give him the honor due his name. We sing songs this morning to be reminded of who he is and the work that he has done. 
And may these songs be an encouragement to you. Some of you just need to sit in your seats and do time with Jesus this morning because there's things he's processing in your heart and you're having a hard time figuring out what that is. If you're here this morning and you need somebody to wrestle with you, to talk with you, to pray with you, we have this prayer table over here and we have people that would be delighted to spend time with you and to point you to Jesus and to help you along in your journey. But I'd encourage you as we spend time worshiping now, this is a response to his word. What is Jesus doing in you? Let's worship his name as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, amen?